Today we're looking at a short film from 1971, commissioned by the Home Office to show the work of the UK Warning and Monitoring Organisation. The film is called Sound and Alarm, and it's on YouTube if you want to seek it out. The film is, of course, propaganda, but it's of the jovial sort. And it shows us the people and the processes behind the four-minute warning. That dreadful sound almost sounds like a ghost or a banshee. But this film tries to push away the eerie feeling which surrounds the siren by showing you the practicalities. Who would sound the siren? What would be going on underground in the bunkers by way of mapping where the bombs fell, measuring their yield, plotting the path of their fallout? Like Protect and Survive, which appeared roughly ten years later, the film is about being practical and useful and rolling up your sleeves and getting to work in order to, hopefully, drive away any sense of depression, futility, hopelessness in the face of the nuclear bomb. The film opens with survivors emerging from various bunkers across the country. They've been undercover for seven days and emerge blinking into the light. But what light? They seem to be bathed in a chalky white glare. No nuclear winter for them then? No hideous polluted smoke and filth and soot hanging in the atmosphere? No, it's uh, strangely bright out there. Everyone stands around, peering out into the dusty light. Their collars are unbuttoned, their ties askew, and they have a light smattering of stubble. They don't look like nuclear survivors. They <laughs> look like a bunch of dudes who've gone on to the casino after the club, and now all they want is a hot shower and a full English. And do we see the terrible, glowing horror they behold? No, we see nothing. They stand outside the bunker and they survey the nuclear devastation, but all we see is a poor dead bird on the ground. Otherwise, we just have to judge the unpleasantness by the look on the survivors' faces. And yeah, they seem grim, shocked, determined, but nothing to suggest this can't all be sorted. Chop, chop. It's that kind of Britishness. It's all about the stiff upper lip. So the film is about the work of the UK WMO, the UK Warning and Monitoring Organisation. So before we look at the film, who were these guys? It was an organisation run by the Home Office, whose job was, as the name suggests, to warn of nuclear attack, to warn the population, that is, of nuclear attack, and then to monitor the attack and its resulting blast and fallout. This organisation was constantly working. They wouldn't just have swung into action in times of nuclear tension. They were constantly working. They just were always on a skeleton staff, and this would have been beefed up, substantially of course, in any national emergency. The staff were trained warning officers, 
and they also had scientists and meteorologists. Indeed, this film, as we'll see, stresses heavily the role of weather forecasting, because of course fallout will drift and its eventual descent is dependent on weather. So you couldn't tell where the fallout was going to go without some meteorologists on hand. But the biggest chunk of the manpower came from the Royal Observer Corps. And remember, the Observer Corps were volunteers. They were giving up their weekends for this. And we discussed them in an episode a few weeks ago. You'll find that in the archive, simply called Royal Observer Corps, and it's actually an extract from my book. So, majority of the staff of the manpower, if they'd ever gone to full strength, would have been the Royal Observer Corps. And you can't warn and monitor the whole country unless you have thousands of guys out there in the field, scattered across the whole country, ready with handheld sirens and equipment which will monitor the strength of nuclear blasts and the radiation levels. So the scientists and the meteorologists, uh, the blokes in suits, would have been in these big bunkers, these HQ bunkers, and they'd have been receiving reports from the Royal Observer Corps posts scattered around the country. So think of the ROC as like the troops of the organisation. They're out there in the field, gathering the information, and then they feed it back to the men in suits in the huge bunkers. They receive the information and they analyse it and they put it to use. But none of it would work, not a single shred of this would work without the Observer Corps volunteers out there across Britain. Every inch of Britain is covered by the network, or was covered by the network of Observer Corps monitoring posts. I have a booklet here from the UK Warning and Monitoring Organisation, which explains its role. And yes, they would have tracked and traced fallout, gathered information on the location and size of nuclear bursts, but the primary task was the warning element. They had to warn the public to sound the alarm, as is the title of the film. The booklet says, Warning of air attack is of vital and primary importance. The task of monitoring fallout, though calling for more resources of men and equipment, is seen essentially as an important adjunct. It is in fact sometimes claimed that UK Warning and Monitoring Organisation will have justified its existence if it carries out its first and final function. So warning and monitoring, yes, they go hand in hand, but warning is more important than monitoring. There's no point tracing fallout and warning all the people in its path if they've all been killed in the initial nuclear blast because you hadn't warned them to take cover. So the four-minute warning is paramount. No point monitoring what comes afterwards if you haven't first warned people to take cover. So back to the film. After our survivors, with their stubble, have stood around blinking into the glare, we flash back to seven days previously, and we f- we flash back into what seems to be a carry-on film. A hunky doctor is flirting with a sexy nurse in the hospital corridor. Oh, darling, I've been looking for you. Are you going on? Mm. I'll see you later. Mm. 
Darling, if anything They're kissing and whispering sweet nothings and he just can't let go of her. The actress who plays the saucy nurse here, Valerie Van Ost, did actually appear as a nurse in Carry On Doctor and was in several other Carry On films. And you can tell. So the nurse um, eventually extricates herself from the doctor's arms and she skips off down the corridor, leaving a hunky doctor to go out on some calls. And he's been summoned to the local nuclear bunker where the UK warning and monitoring guys are hard at work to tend to an injured arm. The bunker is fully manned at this point because we're in a period of nuclear tension. So everyone in the bunker is poised and ready. The bunker is packed full of its whole array of staff. So after he bandages up the arm, he asks the the boss... Well, you know, what's going on down here? What is all this equipment? What is all this gear? And the boss invites him to hang around and see for himself. It's all very casual and chummy. Oh yes, old boy, just hang around and have a cup of tea, why don't you? There's no sense at all that this is a bunker, a secure location, everyone there by invitation only, ready to deal with war. There's no sense of that at all. Doctor wanders in and then proceeds to wander about poking his nose in, asking some questions. Well, you can have the stitches out in about ten days, and you'll need another injection in a month. Oh, thanks. Sorry to bother you. Sure. Have a cup of tea before you go? No, that sounds like a good idea. Where would we be without it? It's uh, none of my business, actually, but well, what the hell is going on here? Well, uh, our job's a matter of seeing the people are warned. Warned of attack, warned of fallout. Sure, but... Honestly, if there is a war, do you really think all this will make any difference? Well, certainly. Not as much as we'd like, obviously. But an effective warning would certainly save lives, probably millions. So the boss, even though war, nuclear war, a nuclear holocaust is about to break upon the world, the boss manages to give the doctor a tour of the bunker. Of course, it isn't realistic. The, this is only happening because we, the doctor is in the place of us, of course, isn't he? And he's being shown around the bunker saying, this is what this button does, this is what that button does, so that we can learn. But nonetheless, it does seem silly that you can just wander into a nuclear bunker on the eve of nuclear war and just annoy everyone and poke your nose in. So he gets the tour of the bunker and we see that the work, of course, of warning and monitoring is split between the men who are at this big control bunker and the Royal Observer volunteers who are spread out across the country in their own tiny, teensy little bunkers, known as monitoring posts. So let's have a quick recap of what the observers were doing out there across the country, the troops of the UK Warning and Monitoring Organisation. Three of them, or sometimes four, would have been assigned to each of these monitoring posts. And their first task, once the war started, would have been to sound the alarm. As we'll see later in the in the film, there are many ways of sounding the nuclear siren across Britain, one of which was for each observer post, if they were in a rural area, I should add, then they would have been equipped with their own handheld siren, which looks like a barrel on a tripod, and they would have had to haul it up out of their little bunker, unfurl its three uh, sturdy legs, and then wind a, like a crank on the side of the siren, and if you wind it five times quickly and then five times slowly, that produces the rising and falling note of the siren. 
So for monitoring posts in rural areas or areas which otherwise wouldn't have had their own siren, they would have been responsible for helping to sound the alarm. Areas uh, in cities, of course, they would have fixed sirens on top of hospitals or schools or town halls or fire stations. But areas which were not equipped with those, then yes, the monitoring posts would have had their own. So upon receiving the attack warning red notification, you scamper up out of your ROC post and you wind the siren by hand. And then, of course, you take cover. Their second task would be to confirm actual nuclear bomb bursts. They had a device in their bunkers which would have measured the sudden change in air pressure caused by a local bomb burst. Not too local, of course, or they themselves would have been wiped out. But the sudden swinging of the needle would tell them that it started, it's all kicked off, a nuclear bomb has detonated somewhere in your vicinity. So they would take a reading from the dial and they would call it in to the Sector HQ where our hunky doctor is. And that call allows the monitoring organisation to start the well, the monitoring part of the job. They would know where this little monitoring post was, and so they'd be able to mark on the map that a bomb has gone off in this area. And due to the size of the pressure wave, they would know the probable size and yield, etc. And of course, they could then plot out the blast radius on their map. Back out there in the field, the ROC posts would also be monitoring radiation levels in the air and would report these back to the bunker. And they would also have a pinhole camera on the surface. And by grabbing the photographic paper from the pinhole camera, they would be able to give more information on the probable location and also whether it was a ground or an air burst. They would report all of this back to the HQ bunker who are receiving reports, of course, from all over the area. And all their staff are plotting each one on a map. So they've got a huge Perspex map, which we see in the film, and that would gradually be filling up with little bomb bursts all over the place. And from all the information coming in, you could then plot fallout plumes, and then your weather guys kick in, and they can say, okay, due to weather conditions, this is where the fallout is going to drift. This is where it's likely to descend. So you gradually assemble a map of your area, with all its bomb blasts, all the radii set out, all the lightly fallout plumes. And that gives you a picture of the of the area, of the sector. Which areas have been wiped out, which areas are relatively safe, which are untouched by blast, which are expected to receive fallout. You get a picture of what the country looks like after nuclear war. So that's the monitoring part of it. Monitoring all these blasts and what they have done and what they are likely to do to the surviving population. Not just the population, of course, but also what's it going to have done to uh, roads and bridges and ports? Are these things still passable, still usable? So that's your warning and your monitoring. Now, throughout the, the Hunky Doctor's tour of the bunker, we hear the constant bleep of the carrier receiver. And we talked about this last week in the Four Minutes of Threads episode. It's a little grey speaker attached to the wall or perched on a desk and it bleeps away happily and constantly and probably annoyingly to let you know that it's on and working and ready to deliver the four-minute warning. As we learned last week, if that happy constant bleep ever stops and starts wailing and screaming attack warning red, 
then that is your four minute warning. You don't get a siren if you're in a bunker below ground because it would deafen you and it's not needed. You just need this guy bleeping and bleeping and then perhaps wailing and alerting you with a verbal message attack warning red. Now, as our hunky doctor has finished his uh, nosy tour of the bunker, he's leaving to go back to the hospital, back to his nurse, no doubt. And as he's leaving, he gives the carry receiver a nice friendly pat. And here's a clip. Well, let's just hope this little beast keeps on with it. Oh, Lord, I busted. So here we are, it has all kicked off. Prompted, I'm sure, by nuclear tension, the failure of diplomatic relations, a mishap, a miscalculation, who knows? Probably not caused by the doctor patting the carry receiver. And so we see the sirens blare across the country. And in Britain, there were lots of different ways for that to happen. One way, as we've discussed, was through the Royal Observer Corps, dragging their big clumsy handheld siren up out of their bunker, setting it up on the grass outside and winding it. Another way uh, is for, as we see in the film, the policeman at his carrier control point to turn a key. Again, we've talked about carrier control points, I won't go over it again, but this uh, device on his desk, when he received the verbal warning, attack warning red, he would pass that warning on to others, such as to our carrier receivers across the country, and he would also turn a key, and that key would um, activate all the big mains-powered sirens in his area. That's those which sat atop schools and hospitals and fire stations, factories, for example. The big gigantic ones which would blare out and alert everyone. So he does that, so that's those sirens triggered. We also see a vicar in a graveyard, and he, with his dog collar on, is again winding a siren. And that's the same thing as the Royal Observer Corps with their handheld sirens. Rural areas in Britain, which were out with the earshot of the big massive sirens on top of schools and factories, etc. In those areas, someone of standing in the community, someone who was known and recognised and trusted, such as the vicar or the local doctor or even the local pub landlord, they would be asked to take on the task of sounding the alarm. So they would be given a carry receiver. So the vicar, for example, that we see here, we can assume that the Home Office guys dropped by the church one day, asked him to take on this duty, and then they would have installed a carry receiver in the, not in the church itself, I assume, but in the, in the vicar's house attached to the church. And he would be trained on how to use it, 
trained in what to do when it starts to blare, which is the same as we saw the Royal Observer Corps do. As soon as you hear that attack warning red, as soon as you hear the wail, you grab your handheld siren, run outside, set the thing up on its little tripod and wind it. Five quick turns, five slow turns again and again and again. So rural vicars, rural doctors, rural pub landlords would be asked to take on that duty. So across Britain, the sirens start to blare. Policemen and vicars, pub landlords, doctors, observer corps staff, all jumping to sound the alarm. In the midst of all that chaos of the sirens screaming, the film shows us something very, very sinister. And that is, amidst all the chaos, we see a row of bunker staff sitting silently and very still with their headsets on. And they're, of course, sitting there waiting to receive those calls from Royal Observer monitoring posts around the country. Soon enough, perhaps in four minutes' time, they will start calling in well, to give the alert, Toxin Bang, that was the code word. They would phone in and say Toxin Bang and then give their location and say that they'd had a bomb burst. So our rows and rows of staff are just waiting there, poised and ready. Ready for the onslaught. That's quite a sinister scene, I thought. I liked that. So now that the nuclear war has begun, everyone in the bunker has their task. So everyone is busy, everyone is fixed and focused and engaged. Except the poor doctor, of course, because he's got no business being in the bunker. He wasn't supposed to be there during the attack. He was only called in because someone hurt their arm. So we see the poor hunky doctor left alone, thinking of his poor nurse, who's obviously left above ground. And if she's in a city hospital, then we don't fancy her chances, do we? Although we know from past episodes of the podcast that major hospitals by this point in a period of nuclear tension would have sent most of their uh, patients home and dispersed most of their staff. Although perhaps that has happened because we do see a quick scene of the nurse running down an empty hospital corridor. So perhaps it is empty because yes, that has happened. They have dispersed or sent home most of their people. And perhaps this poor nurse was one who was nominated to stay behind with the patients who were too sick to be moved or too sick to be discharged. But she's last seen running down an empty corridor and then she's seen no more. But we don't see any horror. This isn't uh, like anything like Threads, of course, or The War Game or The Day After. It's, uh, it's the opposite of that. It's not trying to give us the truth about a, a nuclear attack. It's trying to say because it's commissioned by the Home Office, this thing, if it happened, would be survivable. If we all obey the rules, and if we all remain calm, and if we all have a stiff upper lip, and if we all trust to civil defence and the UK Warning Monitoring Organisation, then many, many lives can be saved. So we see nothing like the horror from Threads or the absolute misery of When the Wind Blows. None of that. We only... When the, when the bomb drops, we see a white flash on the screen and we hear a horse suddenly neigh in some kind of fright, I suppose. And that's it. No horror, no terrible zombie-like survivors, no starvation and anarchy and collapse of civilization. None of that at all, because this has been commissioned by the Home Office. So we get nothing but an aggrieved horse and later, when our brave men emerge from the bunker... We see some dead birds scattered on the ground 
and the doctor remarks, Nobody warned them. Implication being, if only those birds had listened to the four-minute warning, if only they had taken cover, done what they were told, been obedient, they might have survived the war. Regular listeners will know that this podcast normally goes out on a Monday, but I have a few weeks left until my book is finished, so I've been frantically working on that, and yes, have neglected the podcast, but I'm sure that you understand why that is. So I hadn't intended to do a podcast this week, but then I got two notifications from Patreon saying that uh, Kevin Wingfield had signed up and Linda Woolnuff, Linda being one of my long-standing patrons, has increased the amount she donates each month. So with such kind patrons supporting me, I thought, no, come on, we have to get a podcast out this week. So <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, it's thanks to Linda and Kevin and their kind donations to my podcast. If you want to uh, join my Patreon and support my podcast and my nuclear research, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And as I say, a few more weeks now until the book is done, or at least until <laughs> the book is with the publisher, and then I suppose begin long the long slog of editing. So hopefully in a few more weeks, podcasts will be back to normal uh, scheduling on a Monday. And uh, Linda, because you've increased the amount using it, you will now get your name in the acknowledgement section of my book. That's one of the rewards you get as a patron. So please do take a look at my Patreon page. Lots of different levels you can sign up to. Lots of different rewards attached to each level. Donate whatever you like and you can cancel at any time. Remember, you can find me on Twitter under Julie A. McDowell. You can find me on Facebook under Nuclear Britain or on my website at juliemcdowell.com. 